نخدم من القنوات العربية عبر ماي سات بأستراليا وهلأ من قدم لكم مجانا التطبيق الجديد ماي سات جو لتشوفوا أكتر من 80 قناة عربية مع ماي سات جو فيك تشوف يلي بدك ايه وين ما كنت وعلى ثلاث أجهزة مختلفة بنفس الوقت ومع خاصية الإعادة حتى 8 ساعات وخدمة الكاتش أب ما في شي رح يروح عليك الميزات ما بتنعد اشترك هلأ أو جدد اشتراكك لمدة سنة واحصل على مايسات جو مجانا بالإضافة لتخفيضات كبيرة وجهاز وسمارت كارد اتصل هلأ على 1-800-700-506 أو 1-300-976-481 Poor Chidiak from Ray White Bankstown. Most real estate agents will convince you to sell your home, but do you really need to? For all your real estate needs and to discuss your options, contact Paul Chidiak from Ray White Bankstown on 04 991. Do you have the right appliances that will help you tackle the scorching heat this summer? Would you like to enjoy frozen goods while sitting in a calm and cool environment? Smithfield White Goods has just the solution for you. If you're searching for an air conditioner, fridge, freezer, microwave, stovetop, washing machine, and many, many more appliances, head over to Smithfield White Goods at 703 The Horsley Drive, Smithfield, or contact Najem on 02 9897 Smithfield White Goods offers you the right advice and the right price. Old Time Bakery is proud to announce the release of the first gluten-free Lebanese bread to hit the market, specializing in gluten-free wraps and pizza bases. For more information, please contact Old Time Bakery on 9708-4442 or visit their website on www.oldtimebakery.com.au. Building or renovating a home, Insight Plastering can help with wall and ceiling solutions. With our precision and innovation, we can make your dreams come true. If you want to build a house or a new house, you need to do the jobsin and the jobrook for the hitan and the sf. Insight Plastering is the solution. Contact Peter Chalita on 0415-218-030 or Joseph Chalita on 0424-722-268 Inside Plastering ابتدعم صوت المحبي Are you suffering from headaches, migraines, back pain or sciatica? Are you having trouble sleeping or waking up sore and achy? Why not see a professional and have it treated? For many years, chiropractors have fixed and relieved all sorts of pain. Call HPOM and book an appointment today at Complete Balance Chiropractic in Horsley Park. 
on 02-91-59-3711. Are you searching for a location that can host your special occasion? Or a restaurant that offers not just good food, but also good company? Why don't you head over to the Lamppost Restaurant, where you can enjoy Mediterranean and Lebanese food, wood-fire pizza, banquets for special occasions, offering inside and outside seating. Visit the Lamppost Restaurant at 26 Stony Creek Road, Shanes Park. For more information and bookings, call 0423 the Lamppost Restaurant, you will not be disappointed. The Voice of Charity would like to thank our current sponsors for their ongoing support. And if you would like to become one of our sponsors, please contact the Voice of Charity office on 9625-6111 or email us on voc at voc.org.au In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity. And welcome back to another week on the Catholic Toolbox, the art of practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh, here as we equip you with practical solutions to live your Catholic faith in our modern world of today. And what could be more practical than reforming and advancing sacred music today, post-Vatican II? That's why I brought in expert on the subject. There could be no other than Sir Bernard Kirkpatrick. Welcome aboard tonight. Well, thanks, George. It's great to be here on your program, and thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. There's, uh, then nobody else came to mind when, I, when we wanted to speak about restoring sacred music after the Second Vatican Council than yourself. Uh, do, do you want to give a bit of a brief 
uh, to our listeners about your background because you have such an extensive and and very rich um, uh, profile on sacred music. You're one of the very few in Australia, I believe, uh, who is most qualified to speak about the subject. So give our listeners a bit of a brief about yourself and uh, your history. Well, thanks, George. That's a, a very flattering introduction. And uh, yes, look, I, I, I'm in a very um, fortunate place to uh, be able to really carry out in my professional work one of my great loves that I've had uh, since uh, my childhood days. So uh, uh, there are others who work in the area of sacred music, of course, and that's in Catholic churches, but also across some of the other denominations where the choral tradition and uh, liturgical music is uh, kept in their churches. Um, as far as my background is concerned, well, it started off when I was uh, just a youngster. Um, I grew up in Tasmania, which is the southernmost state of Australia. Um, and I uh, started, like most children, learning the piano at a very early age. I was about five uh, from the, the sisters in the local convent school. And then uh, really started to play the organ. In fact, also um, in our local parish church from about the time that I was nine years old. So I had a deep uh, love of um, music in the church, even in those early years. Uh, yeah. My father was a, a great uh, lover of sacred music and quite a talented uh, musician, a beautiful voice. And uh, he sort of introduced me to uh, uh, some of the key people who then gave me access to the instrument to practice yes. the organ. And, and so it went from there. And then when I um, left Tasmania, I, I came to Sydney here and I started... What year was that? I left Tasmania in 1984, came here to Sydney University and uh, I was a student, a resident on campus at St John's College there. And uh, once I started at the university, I couldn't help myself and I started to bring together people on the, the local college campuses who were interested in church music and started to form some small choir groups uh, in the colleges. Just as a student. In just the as a student, yes. yeah. I was doing it at school too, actually, by the way. Yes. Just pulling in friends from uh, school and Excellent. in lunchtime we'd uh, make music together and... and uh, I remember my days working at St John's College, such a phenomenal chapel there. Wonderful yes. chapel. Yes. A, a, an inspiration to really be able to provide music to complement the architecture and the beauty of that particular um, that space. Um, so yes, I was at St John's College. I started to learn the organ formally um, with the Sydney City organist. His name was Robert Ampt. Um, and I entered uh, some of the organ competitions and I won the Sydney organ competition in 1988. And from there I was uh, invited to apply to St Mary's Cathedral and I was fortunate enough to uh, be appointed one of the assistant organists at St Mary's. And through that avenue I became um, uh, acquainted with the, the choir and the choral tradition of the church um, because St Mary's maintained a full men and boys choir as they still do to this day and uh, through those experiences I broadened my knowledge and started out to really understand um, well the whole sphere of I suppose Catholic church music in particular. So um, <clears throat> From St Mary's Cathedral, I, I also retained association with some of the parishes around Sydney. I had a choir which I formed at St Francis Church at um, uh, Paddington, which is still going today. And then I 
was appointed as the music director at St. Patrick's Cathedral in Parramatta in 2005, I think. 2005, thing. I think. Yes. It's been a few years. <laughs> well, I know you're still there for a fact. That's right. It's, it's, it's been quite some years. At our parish. Excellent. Yes. And we're, we're absolutely proud of the work of the choir of St. Patrick's Cathedral in Parramatta. And uh, may I take uh, the time here alive on air to acknowledge the tremendous work under your leadership that the choir does oh, thank you, George. the cathedral. It's phenomenal music. I know people across the entire diocese come just to listen uh, to experience the liturgy, but in the context of such beautiful music, which helps to clothe the liturgy and complement the sacred actions and the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And do you want to talk about a bit of your achievements over the years, how you've been able to help in the area of restoring sacred music in the past, and some of the publications that you've spoken about uh, before with me? Sure. Well, obviously, um, referring back to the, to the music tradition in the cathedral here, um, I've been able to do that really by virtue of having a, a great team of musicians uh, around me. Um, to make music in a church or a cathedral requires dedication, it requires skill on the part of the singers and the musicians, um, perseverance, um, it requires a, a, a dedication uh, to one's faith and prayer life. Um, so really without those people it wouldn't all happen. So I'm really, I suppose, in a sense, just the ringleader yeah. and uh, <laughs> pull it all together. But um, I, I've always had that instinct. Um, I've always wanted to share my interest and love of uh, music with other people. And uh, so I've been doing that um, in many, many places over many, many, many years. Um, some of the highlights, I suppose, of my um, career as a musician in the church um, would include, uh, for example, um, 2016, um, I was the, um, the, the secretary of the National Liturgical Music Board, which was the, the board set up by the Australian Catholic Bishops Conference to provide uh, guidance and uh, advice to the bishops on matters pertaining to sacred music. And one of the projects that was undertaken um, early in the 2000s was to produce a, uh, a common repertoire of hymnody yes. and mass settings, yes. which came together in the Catholic Worship Book too. And uh, that was a response to the, the Vatican document, uh, Liturgium Authenticum, that wanted to go back and revisit the texts of the Missal and the texts yes, of the Mass yes. and the liturgy that we use. And uh, this hymn book was really uh, an attempt to complement the revision of the Missal and provide music which would be suitable for use in parishes uh, in this particular day and age. So that was one highlight. Um, other highlights of my uh, life have been, um, or particular highlight I suppose that really I cherish is the uh, uh, World Youth Day Sydney in 2008. Yes, that's a very and, important uh, achievement. I was invited to be the organist for the opening and closing masses of World Youth Day and uh, the closing mass of course being celebrated by His Holiness Pope Benedict, uh, a great lover of liturgy and music himself and um, so that was particularly um, poignant for me to be involved in that. Um, and I also had the privilege in 1991 of singing for Pope John Paul II in his private chapel in the Vatican apartments 
uh, for a morning mass yep. as part of St Mary's Cathedral Choir. We, we were part of a, a European tour group at that time and I was inv um, invited to be part of a smaller group to sing for Pope John Paul II. So there are a few of the highlights of my um, uh, life uh, in music and um, I cherish them very much. But they're all in yesteryear and, uh, <laughs> and it's still all uh, about but moving I, forward. I, I see them as having responded to the call, the, uh, the call of Vatican II to preserve sacred music and restore, and especially restore that post-Vatican II. But I won't shy away from uh, a recent achievement of yours uh, being uh, knighted in the Order of St. Silvester. So uh, Bernard is, uh, I refer to you now as Sir Bernard. Oh, George. Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't worry. I, I haven't turned up in my braided swallow coat and I don't have I'm my... I'm still waiting for your sword. I don't have the plumed yet. hat and I don't have the sword. So uh, you can just call me by my first name. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go into the subject. We look at the condition in many churches around the world, around this country. We don't find sacred music anymore. It's sort of, it's become very contemporary. And a lot of young people like myself seem to drift away from that. And that's why you have an influx of young people at traditional Latin mass circles, at cathedrals, and at parishes where they preserve sacred music. But not only that, that, comp that goes hand in hand with obviously the faith and the community and everything else that comes with it. But... What really went wrong in terms of music after Vatican II? Well, there's a lot of questions in there and there's a lot of things to be unpacked. Vatican II, I think, um, set out to re reform the church in a whole lot of different ways. And one area of church reform that the fathers looked at was, of course, liturgical reform. And liturgical reform had had a long history, even before the Second Vatican Council. Yeah. People are familiar with the reforms of Pope Pius XII, for example, for the Holy Week liturgies the, the in, in Holy Week, 1955. Yeah. Um, and that was all part of an ongoing process of liturgical reform, uh, which I suppose really sped up after the, the First and Second World Wars, really, which yeah. probably got in the way of progress. So by the time we get to the 1960s, the council is looking at, at some ways of trying to re-engage the, the worshipping assembly, the Catholic faithful, with what was actually going on in the sanctuary of the churches. Yeah. Um, and of course, the council involved many um, uh, conciliums and uh, discussion groups and advisors. And eventually uh, some key points were uh, nutted out and formulated in the constitution on the sacred liturgy so yes. sacrum sanctum, sacrum sanctum concilium um, is really the principal foundational document which underwrites the roman liturgy yes that we know in the novus ordo mass um, i think there were subsequent documents also that, that, that came out from the Vatican. Um, particularly key to this was the Musicum Sacrum document of 1967. And that put flesh on the bones of some of the key points that came out in the Constitution in, in, in the earlier years. Um, I think one of the problems that happened is, is that whilst these concepts and ideas were being um, uh, um, promulgated, 
uh, there was a two-stream system yes. going. Yes. One was the official documentations and the, 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 the mind of the council fathers wanting yes. to achieve a certain outcome. And the other was the perception on the part of the lay faithful and the clergy about what was expected of them to do in the reform. Okay, yes. And so I, the, so I it's sort of like saying the, the principle and what this is the operational way we're going to roll this out. Exactly. Yes. And so I think what happened really was is that the, the way that people thought about moving forwards didn't always necessarily align with what the documents and the, the mind of the Council Fathers okay, yes. had in yes. terms of achieving reform in liturgy. So, for example, when I was growing up um, in school, in parish... Uh, the idea of choirs, for example, uh, was somewhat frowned upon. Um, they were considered old-fashioned, old hat, outdated. Who wants to sing that old-fashioned music? Who wants all that Latin, um, all that Gregorian chant stuff? Well, it's, it's, it's too old, it's got no beat, it's got no it's rhythm, it's, young it's lifeless. Want... Young people don't want any of that. Out with it's... the old, in with the new. Exactly. And so there was, I think, an instant reaction uh, which took place and in that zeal and that enthusiasm for reform there was a lot of music which was instantly manufactured and bearing in mind of course you know the Catholic liturgy changed just overnight from exactly. Latin into the vernacular languages yes. and for the English speaking world we really didn't have any music instantly available <laughs> so what what did we do um, well the options were one uh, we could borrow music from other English-speaking um, church traditions. Yes. So we borrowed hymnody from the Anglicans. Yes. We borrowed hymnody from the Methodists and the yeah. Baptists and the and and all of those churches that had a, a strong hymn singing tradition yes. in their liturgy. And even Hillsong. Uh, as that, well, well that comes much later. Yes. That comes yeah. much later because yes. I'm talking about the period of the late 60s and the early 70s. Okay, yes. Where, so the, the, where the music in those early days was, was perhaps more sort of conservative and more formal and more traditional, yes. but it borrowed from those other traditions. And then what started to happen was is that a lot of music was um, produced um, in the folk idiom, uh, which in a way mirrored the contemporary styles of the period. So you had, you know, sort of folk singers and um, um, people who are singing uh, songs that have particular political messages, freedom ah, songs, yes. um, uh, anti-slavery songs, all of that sort of uh, music influenced um, the new music that was being written by many musicians from, say, for example, religious congregations and orders. Yep. So a lot of music came out from, um, you know, people who are in um, religious communities and they started to generate uh, what we would call more contemporary style hymns and songs. Um, and that's during the 1980s, right through the 90s. Then we have another phase where I suppose... Uh, the style of younger generations starts to move away from even that um, folk style of um, song um, and music becomes more electronic, music becomes more yes. uh, highly sophisticated and manufactured. Very um, contemporary. And, and so you end up, you know, sort of with uh, a band music being influenced by um, electronic music and, and other 
groups that were using electronic equipment. Yes. So praise and worship bands became big. Um, and the influence of um, churches like the Hillsong Church here in Australia um, was enormous um, because it reflected a musical genre and style of that was really the most up to date in terms of what was perceived as popular music, yes. contemporary music. Yes. But I think 50 years down the track after the Second Vatican Council, people started to really look back and think, well, we've had an infiltration of all these different musical styles from other denominations and traditions, and um, what's happened to our traditional sacred music? Where's our choirs gone? Where, about, where, where is, is our, our polyphony and our sacred um, um, uh, choral styles gone? Where's our Gregorian chant tradition gone? Where's the sung tradition of the, on the part of the liturgical ministers, the priest and the deacons and and those Which you often, you don't often hear priests and deacons singing anymore. Well, this is true. But all of that was, was actually uh, envisioned by the Second Vatican Council that the liturgy would continue to be a sung form of worship. Yeah. And those people who come from non-Latin rite backgrounds would be probably more familiar with with the clergy of their tradition actually singing everything. Mm -hmm. So you go into an Orthodox church, mm -hmm. everything gets chanted. Yes. Nothing gets said. It's yes. all chanted all and sung. All Eastern liturgies seem to exactly. sing everything. And even in non-English liturgical traditions and places of worship, the clergy and the liturgy tends to be sung more than what it has been in the English language sphere. Ah, so excellent. we have we've got several disconnects going um, in different sort of aspects uh, of the right. church's tradition here, um, but the, certainly the sung liturgy was was a focus of the Second Vatican Council, and specifically um, the Sacrum Sacrum Concilium and Musicum Sacrum, the general instruction of the Roman Missal, which is a critical document uh, to really guide us in how we carry out the liturgical rites of the, of the Missal. Um, they all speak of the role of those music ministers. The role of the priest and the deacon is, is, is crucial. Um, the important role of the choir and the cantor and the other musicians, the organists or whatever form of accompaniment that you might have. They're all being there and they're all promoted as being part of our Catholic tradition and that we should be having them as part of our regular corporate worship. So essentially the documents that go with the Missal um, are not encouraging a said Mass with music just tacked on in a decorative way. It's actually asking for the entire liturgical experience in a sense to be rendered in song and in music as a complete whole. Now some people don't like that concept because many Catholics, particularly in Australia, who might have grown up in that old um, Irish Catholic tradition, yes. um, were used to a different liturgical style, even before the Council. You know, Mass was low Mass. At the best, you might have been able to get a Missa Cantata. Yes. But a, a high Mass was rare. And really, even pre-Vatican II, Music in some of our churches was pretty bad and pretty awful. 
So it's not a new experience for us to know that that there's bad music. It's always been there and always been, you know, used in parishes. On a spiritual level, Bernard, what role does music play on a spiritual level in clothing the liturgy and the theological reality that's taking place there? Well, the documents talk about music as being integral to the liturgy. So that's what I mean about simply not having a liturgy that's recited or said and music just being tacked on in some sort of decorative sense. Music is there to be a way of adding beauty and inspiration. Some of the old documents talk about the edification of of the faithful. And I think that's a word that's we've sort of forgotten, that people need to be edified. They need to be lifted up. And the way they're going to be lifted up very often is through a wonderful encounter with with the the sacred arts, whether that be through music or whether it be looking at the beautiful stained glass or whether it be appreciating the dignity of the of the ceremonial that we have or um, the beauty of of the way of the vestments and uh, and and the the the, the decoration of of the church the worship spaces. All of that goes to really um, lifting a person into a, an experience which is not sort of worldly, but which is, I suppose, that liturgical foretaste of heaven. Exactly. And so it's engaging the senses. I- exactly. What we hear, what we smell with the incense. All of that. You're better like the incense. All of that. <laughs> All of that. The incense, the, the sacred liturgical action happening, clothed with the music, everything else that's having the the sacred architecture exactly um and it it just all complements each other Mm -hmm. very beautifully indeed so vatican ii called us let's say for instance uh if we take the section um in sacred sanctum concilia on sacred music it calls for gregorian chant to be the primary uh, have the primary place of worship Mm -hmm. so gregorian chant is the official music of the Roman Rite? Gregorian chant is certainly uh, the oldest form yeah. of music that we've inherited in the, the Roman yeah. church tradition. Um, it's not the only form of music that we have it's from not the only very form ancient music, times, yeah. but it, it's certainly, um, it's the default. So it, it's, it's really the, the basic core repertoire um, and when we talk about Gregorian chant, it's, it's a rather nebulous sort of definition because Gregorian chant, actually, there are many different forms of chant. But the yeah. Gregorian chant, I suppose, is really the codification of the Roman liturgy into a particular sung form and style. And um, the chant is rendered in the missals uh, for the sung parts that the priest sings, the dialogues, the, the greetings, the collects. Um, what the deacon might sing in in the tones for the gospel, etc. Um, but of course, there are the chants for the choir, um, the propers of the mass, the entrance antiphons, the communion antiphons. There's the chants for the people, the ordinary of the mass, the uh, the Kyrie or the the Gloria, the Agnus Dei. All of those parts which are proper to the to the to the people present. So uh, the chant provides the backstop and the starting point. Yep. And and, and over the centuries, it's also been the inspiration for other composers to take threads of chant and yes. incorporate them into new styles of musical composition. So it uh, has pride of place, but 
it's not the only form it's of music in that form, in yeah. that place. Yeah. Exactly. And what what is is sacred music superior in the context of the liturgy to contemporary music that would have been plucked out of let's say some a composer who made it a couple of years ago this year? Well, I, I think one needs to evaluate sacred music on criteria which are somewhat objective and that criteria needs to apply across different forms of music. So just because a piece of music is ancient or old um, or modern and contemporary doesn't necessarily mean to say by definition it's, it's bad or good. Let me define it more clearly. Uh, let's say strumming a guitar and yes. drums. You know, that's the typical... Um, uh, picture of contemporary, let's say that we, we would look at and analyze as compared to a Gregorian sung mass. Mm -hmm. What would be more superior and that would clothe the liturgy better? Well, you're asking me to, to, to really <laughs> reflect my personal opinion here, which of course is going to err on the side of, of the more uh, traditional styles of, of choir and the beautiful pipe okay, organ, which the documents speak of also as having pride of place in the liturgy. And people forget that, that the organ has been for a thousand years, well, yes. you know, the key um, instrument for accompanying um, the Latin rite. Um, so whether or not a piece of music was written 500 years ago or was written five years ago, we should be really evaluating the suitability of that music for worship according what, to what certain is, can criteria. You run us briefly about a criteria of determining well then it must have a sense it must have a sense of what is sacred about it so there is a problem i think with some forms of contemporary music which and i might say or so that in fact pope benedict um in his um um a book i think it was called sing to the lord some years back yes um in fact, referred directly to particular forms of modern music which were really quite antithetical to Catholic worship. So um, heavy rock styles, um, styles which were associated with profanity, um, with, um, you know, a bad lifestyle or um, yeah. things like that. But mind you, though, popes also throughout the ages have actually condemned certain forms of music for being ribald or being licentious in style. Yes. Pope Clement, you know, in the very early fourth century forbade uh, some of those musical instruments. And, you know, and so because they were associated with the secular sphere and they were deemed as being unsuitable for something that was religious in nature. And in fact, interestingly, um, the Orthodox churches have retained that custom of excluding all instruments because they're associated with temporal Things. Yes, and yes. so you know, so in the Byzantine liturgy, you won't there find are anything. No, there but are no instruments. There are no it's instruments. just the God-given instrument Androning. of the voice, Androning, <laughs> which I know you love so much. So um, I, I think that therein lies um, the hub of it. Yes, and, and 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 of course, music is constructed around certain theoretical principles. So there can be good music and there can be bad music. 
And while somebody might say, oh, all music can be, you know, it's fine, it sounds great to me. Well, there are musical rules that, that we've inherited, you know, throughout history. For instance, uh, lex orandi, lex credendi is the famous Latin phrase, how we praise, how we believe. So yes. obviously the music should reflect some theological content relevant to the liturgy. The second I would say is, um, does it foster contemplation? The mass requires our intellectual, our spiritual contemplation and uh, can we determine whether or not music does help us with contemplation better? Well, I think that's a very subjective. Than other forms? I think that is a subjective. Is it subjective? I think yeah. that's subjective. And and I'll, I'll 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 relate this to you in in this way, George. When I set about programming the music throughout the course of the year for different liturgical occasions, I need to look at all the repertoire which is available to me. And then I'll choose from that music repertoire the pieces which I think are appropriate to a particular occasion. Okay? <coughs> but you're always going to get somebody who comes along and says, I hated that piece of music or that particular style of music. I, I don't like that French music of the, of, of the uh, early 20th century. I can't stand it. Yeah. But other people will say, oh, it's just magnificent. Hear how wonderful the organ sounds. It's roaring and it's exciting <laughs> and, the, and the choir is sounding glorious. Other people want something that's softer and more uh, inducive to contemplation. But let's also not forget, you know, that the, the liturgical act of worship is a corporate act. So it's not about necessarily your own personal um, yes. interior uh, disposition all the time. It's also about what is the contribution of art and gifts that the community brings as a whole to our worship over the course of yes, our liturgical year. Yes, that's a very good point, year. actually. It's a very important so, point that you made. So we need to be careful about making personal judgments where you dismiss a particular piece of music as being unsuitable uh, simply because I don't, I, I don't like it. Um, it's more complex and it's more nuanced than that. Um, so sometimes it, it's a challenge for people to be able to, I suppose, in a sense, digest some music which might be played in church um, because it just doesn't always align with their particular personal tastes. But that's the nature of not about know, your of, personal of, taste. Of corporate it's the worship, worship of you God. know. That's what that's what your but private what devotions are for, you yeah. know, and your personal piety is. That's when you sort of live out your own personal yeah. taste. But the liturgical worship act is the corporate worship that is the whole group of people and all the gifts that are brought there. So I try as music director to make the best choices from the, the repertoire options that I have there in front of me. So you know, on some occasions, I'll, I'll, I'll program lots of Gregorian chant with lots of yes. droning just for you, George. Those <laughs> hallelujahs, you know, in Advent and uh, uh, occasions like that. Um, Whereas on other occasions, I might program something which is a little more contemporary music, for example, by John Rutter. Um, it's, 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 it's what I would call easy listening music, um, but it might have a particular suitability for a wedding, for example, you know, where you get people that come into the church who have no, um, I suppose, um, experience of church life. Yes. And uh, it can sometimes be helpful for them, in fact, to be an introduction into our worship. You know, So many times in people's faith journey, I've heard the story that they've walked into a mass and they've heard the Gregorian chant or the polyphony or the sacred meaning and they've been captivated by it. 
Like for instance, Prince Vladimir of Kiev, when he marched into Constantinople, he heard the Byzantine chant and he thought, you know, he perceived himself as if he was in heaven. Um, so, so on so many occasions, I hear that the sacred music being there present is what has lured people in to at least look at the faith. Definitely. So, there is certainly, that is one of the, the important parts about the music in our church tradition, is, is that it needs to be evangelical in nature. Yes. It needs to actually reach out and, in a way, be able to communicate the message of the gospel and, and the teachings of, of the church and our faith tradition. If it doesn't do that, it, it's simply decoration and it fails. Yes, so, it fails for what its purpose is. Exactly. Absolutely. So... Now we'll take our break before we take our uh, take some time for questions or comments. So if you want to call us in with any questions for Bernard here, the number is 9625611. That is 9625611. Or simply comment any of the Facebook Live platforms or email us at thecatholictoolbox at gmail.com. That is thecatholictoolbox at gmail.com. So stay tuned here on 1701 AM. And welcome back to another week on the Catholic Toolbox, the art of practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manassa, here on 1701AM, as we equip you with practical solutions to live your Catholic faith in our modern world of today. And we're continuing a very important discussion with, with uh, Sir Bernard Kirkpatrick here on restoring sacred music post-Vatican II. Now, Bernard, we heard uh, a very a piece that I'd never heard before here, just on our break. 
what was that and what, why did you choose that for our break? Well, George, that piece of music we just heard was called When to the Temple Mary Went. Yes. Um, What's its particular significance well, today? Today, of course, is the Feast of Candlemas, 2nd of February, and also known as the Presentation of Our Lord in the Temple. And that particular song is a beautiful uh, anthem which was originally written, in fact, uh, written in, in German uh, and then adapted into English. So it's come through various different choral traditions of, yes. uh, of different denominations. Um, but it speaks of uh, Mary going to the temple with the child Jesus, uh, as was the custom uh, in those days, and presenting him to uh, uh, the priest Simeon. And uh, it's at that point when Simeon then says, well, now, Lord, let your servant go in peace, for mine eyes have seen the, the, you know, thy salvation and the glory of your people of Israel. So it, it ties in with what today's yes. uh, feast is. Uh, look, and uh, for those who, just a reminder, for those who want to call in here, the number is 96256111. That is 96256111. So call in here with your questions on sacred music. And Bernard will answer, answer them for you. The, the number is 96256111. That is 96256111. Or you can comment in the Facebook Live platforms. We're waiting here for your questions or comments. So, Bernard, it's very clear what, what, the history of the church's tradition that we maintain sacred music. Vatican II called for Gregorian chant to have primary place and other sacred music. Where we often find them on, on, on a practical level is, is in cathedrals, traditional Latin mass circles, and other parishes who are, who are very centred and very centred on um, following the call of Vatican II. But what, what disappoints me is when you go to a lot of parishes around the world, wherever, and you don't find sacred music. It's, there's, there has been no attempt you know, to sort of... Uh, incorporate into the life of the parish and and many parishes are probably struggling how do i get it started how do i get the choirs that are there already uh in our parish to start singing more sacred music and implementing that into the life of the parish so how what would be your advice what are the three practical tools you can give to parish priests uh, um, music directors choir directors around the country and around the world on how to get started from going from just banging some drums all the time to maybe incorporating some sacred music? <laughs> well, George, that's a really tricky question. <laughs> that's a really tricky I ask question. The tricky you certainly do. <laughs> um, look, it is a challenge, and I think that uh, in this day and age, it's it's a challenge for a whole lot of reasons. Um, there's many conflict. Uh, there's many competing events that take place, you know, with activities that run concurrently in church. So trying to find people can sometimes be challenging. Um, trying to deal with the politics of any particular parish can be a challenge. Yes, that's uh, trying to uh, persuade a, a parish priest or members of the clergy in that parish, or even some of the parishioners or the uh, current musicians about uh, taking a, a different turn uh, can be uh, quite difficult and quite challenging as well. So 
there's a whole lot of strategies, I suppose, that one really needs to think about and put in place if you're going to really succeed in, in building a sacred music tradition is what I've often parish. found is that there has been no attempt to try and get working. So let's start introducing Gregorian chant for that matter. But if they do, or if they are trying to, what can be three practical tools well, they can adopt? Yeah, sure. There's this, this, I think there's several issues here. One is, is that um, in many ways, I think we're actually in a better place uh, today than what we were, say, 30 years ago in terms of trying to uh, establish a tradition of what I would call classical sacred music yes. uh, in parishes. But let's be realistic here as well. Many of our parishes are today struggling uh, to find resources to achieve all sorts of um, outcomes in, in their parish life. And music and the liturgy is just one of them. Um, I think that in the bigger churches, um, maybe in the cities, um, in the larger towns, uh, we're more fortunate to be able to have uh, access to musicians, whether they be already in the parish or they be in the schools associated with parishes. Um, but we can certainly uh, get access to um, people, I think, who have got some basic music skills, whether that yes. be in uh, singing or playing the keyboard, um, as good starting points. Um, so I, I think that there's more fertile ground out there. Um, certainly um, my experience with uh, teaching in seminaries is that today... And you do teach in I do. I teach in two I seminaries. Yes. One Sydney, the Good Shepherd, and the other one Holy Spirit Seminary at Parramatta. So over the last 15, 16 years, I've seen quite a lot of seminarians go through, through to ordination. And I know that those young men are keen to, I suppose, reclaim some of our yes. Catholic liturgical heritage. And, and that's admirable, but we still need to be realistic. It's not achievable everywhere, but in the larger places, we might set out a, a more um, bold vision of what we might uh, want to, to achieve. In smaller parishes, we might have to be realistic and think, well, because we have to go with something a little bit more basic and a little bit more simple, but yet which is done well and which is still beautiful and still lifts. But we can gradually build it up. We can. Because so, often the people who can sing, let's say, rock music, have beautiful voices and can actually sing Gregorian chant. Well, some people, some, are some people are surprised, in fact, what they can achieve. Of course. But of course, it also comes down to good leadership. You need to have somebody who has the strength um, in terms of uh, leadership, um, both in dealing with people, but also strong musical leadership. Because if you have strong musical leadership, that leader can often um, bring out of um, other musicians more than they thought that they could exactly. achieve. That's absolutely correct. So, um, look, I, I think there are three, three points, George, that you, you want me to uh, nail here. The first is, if you really want to get started, you, you have to have a plan. Yes. You just can't suddenly dream up 
oh, well, next week we're going to start with a choir and we're going to have, um, you know, sort of some um, beautiful Palestrina and we're going to sing some Gregorian <laughs> chant and, and everybody in the church is going to love it. Um, and we're going to have lots of bells and smells to go with it. Yes, um, I'm all for it, that. It, sure. And if you go about that, then you might find yourself hitting a brick wall very quickly. So the plan has to be a smart plan. Yes. And the plan needs to, I think, first of all, establish what it is that you want to achieve so that the people who might be interested in joining this um, development actually see clearly what it, what it is that they're going to invest their time in, what it is that they're going to achieve at the end of that period where you've started to do some work with yes, them. Beautiful. So that plan is really critical. So the idea, for example, of having regular rehearsals is important. I think ad hoc rehearsals are problematic because people are not are able to roster that into their regular daily routine or weekly routine. But if you have a regular plan and say, well, we're going to have a regular rehearsal time and yes. we come together and we're going to work on our musical skills and we're going to um, put everything together that we need to do, then people know what they're committing to. And that's really Beautiful. important, okay? Because two. that provides continuity and consistency Excellent. and it, it will get people in who, who think, well, I think this is a real uh, good um, project, um, but if it's, if it's just ad hoc, they're not going to commit to it. Okay, yes. So that's really yes. important. So regular rehearsal. Um, it's important to go out and recruit. How do you recruit in parishes? Well, that can be a tricky one. Sometimes you can recruit from some of the musicians who might already be there, but you'd be surprised at how many musicians are actually probably sitting in the pews who don't necessarily put up their hand because they don't want to be involved with maybe a group that's been there for a long, 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 long time, yeah, okay, that's yes. very tired, that does the same old repertoire week in, week out, that might be not to the, the taste or, or to the standard of that person's particular musical training and experience. So you need to recruit, um, and that can be done, as I say, through the parishes, but it can also be done in the schools. Um, and you can also look into your local community because there are a lot of lapsed Catholics out there, mm -hmm. you know, who are just looking for something that's going to sort of, in a sense, re-engage them re in the life their of the faith. church. That can know? be an opportunity. And that's where music can be so critical. I've seen over the years many, many people who have come back to the church and, and the way, the pathway back for them has been through their musical gift. And that's the way yes, that they can make absolutely. feel as they make a contribution to the life of the community and that way they feel as though they're linked into the life of the church and, then and their faith they starts back. to grow. And, faith starts and that's really back. important. Absolutely. So uh, recruiting is important. Um, I think realistically, we need also to be looking at, you know, who are the people with the, the requisite skills? You know, the gospels talk about, uh, you know, the man with the talents. If you've got the talents, you should be putting those talents to use. But conversely, if somebody is part of a music group and they can't sing in tune or they have difficulty um, you know, with basic musical concepts, then they're not going to be necessarily a great asset if you're really trying to set up something that's going to continue into the long term. And that sounds really hard and it sounds a bit, um, what's the word, uh, maybe unchristian even. Yes. But there's a job for everybody and sometimes um, the people that align themselves with the music groups do so because they see an active social group. But as I keep reminding my musicians, we are not here first and foremost 
to be a social group. We are here first and foremost to serve with our talents the liturgy and the people of our of our church. So it's important that we really um, try to identify the people who have got the requisite talents. Yes. And then once you get that, you will be surprised, in fact, how many other people come on board who will say, well, they're good musicians. I'm happy to sort of, you know, um, yes, get involved in doing that. Okay. And we have a question here through yep. Facebook uh, sure. live from Peter. Peter asks, can Bernard explain why there is hostility towards a Gregorian chant on behalf of some of the faithful and clergy in parishes and how to combat it? Well, that's a good That's a common one. That's a very good question. <laughs> Why is there hostility towards Gregorian chant? Well, I suppose... People don't like it, but why be hostile to it? Sure. Well, you know, look, there's a lot of people in our parishes that range from, you know, sort of those who are born yesterday to those who have been around <laughs> for 100 years. And some of those that are in the older age groups remember days in their earlier years where maybe their experience of Gregorian chant was not so good. The reality, George, is that Gregorian chant hasn't always sounded as glorious as what you hear on the CDs from the monks of Heiliger Kreuz in, you know, Austria or, or Salem or, or yeah. places like that. You know, some places it was done really badly. It was done slowly. It was done turgidly. There was nothing <laughs> about it that was inspiring or I inspirational. Imagine. I can imagine. So, yeah. You know, there was a, a, a performance problem, okay? Or maybe I, perhaps some people just don't like anything traditional. Well, they just want modern, they want out with the old, uh, in with the new. Maybe that's perhaps, true. Yeah. I, I think those people are few and far between. I think that yes. everybody does love sort of a lot of things which are traditional. Okay. But certainly, with the chart is concerned, it, the performance of it can be done badly. And that can be a real um, turn off. Yes. Aesthetically, it becomes unpleasing. Um, the other problem that some people have with it is, is the Latin language. Um, you'll just never convince some people that uh, retaining Latin has any virtue. Yes, okay. Some people will just be completely... I my battles. Yeah, some people will be completely uh, averse to having any Latin whatsoever. Fortunately, in a multicultural city like Sydney and other places where uh, there are many people that speak you know, many different languages, the use of Latin is not so problematic, so um, we don't tend to come across that. But I think it's important, though, that if you're going to sing Gregorian chant or even polyphony or something in a foreign language, that you actually provide a translation of what's being sung. It's critical. Yes. So obviously. that people can understand why are we actually doing this particular piece of music. It's like when to the Temple Mary went. Why did I choose that music? Because it relates to the feast of today. So if we're going to choose a piece of Gregorian chant, well, then we need to know, well, what's this text about that's being sung? How does it relate to today's yes. feast? And then people will start to accept, well, there's a place for that. It, it's relevant. Um, but, you know, um, I, I suppose the tradition of chant has, has been uh, so silent for such a long time in so many places that trying to reintroduce it can be challenging because it's just such a different style of music and there are many forms of chant so you know maybe the way to go about it is to introduce something that's a little bit more simple um, and that's done well 
and that therefore appeals rather than trying to sort of like, you know, do a very complex Gregorian what proper. What could be an example? Well, you know, I mean, for example, you know, some of those easy settings of the Kyrialeison or the Day, the litany forms, you know, they're simple chants. Well, let's say Orbis Factor. Well, splendid, George. Yes. Um, <laughs> that, I'm sure, would appeal to a lot of people. Um, it's something which could be easily learned by the cantor yes, and by the and choir. Yes, and it's quite simple. And in fact, which the congregation can also sing, yes, yes. part of the ordinary of the Mass. Um, but look, you, you just won't necessarily be able to convince everybody that Gregorian chant is, is, is the be-all and end-all of everything. And it's not, because our music tradition didn't stop a thousand years ago. So um, it's a question also about balance. Sometimes you go to a liturgy and you might find that the, the whole liturgy is done just in Gregorian chant. That can be pretty hard going for yes. people that are not accustomed to chant. Yes. So um, you need to choose carefully how you incorporate the chant into the liturgy and, uh, and, and the complexity of the chant and how good your musicians are at actually rendering yes, it. Yes, at actually rendering it to mm. their abilities, but obviously challenging and pushing them sure. to advance, you know, not mm. to stay... Stagnant. Now we have another question from Matthew. Matthew asks, with the pandemic forcing restrictions on choral singing in parishes, what suggestions would you give to maintain sacred music at Mass? Do you envision cantor and organist to be a part of the solution? Would this, would this also be a timely opportunity to introduce more challenging solo music or Gregorian chant in Latin? Secondly, could you unpack the term active, participatio actuosa? Does complex polyphonic music or music in different language languages preclude active participation? Right, okay. It's a fair few questions. There's there. a lot of questions going on so in there, George. We'll start off with the um, What suggestions would you give to maintain sacred music at mass in light of the pandemic? Well, of that's been a really difficult one, of course. Um, in in our situation here in Sydney in New South Wales. Um, we've just been through 12 months of the, of the pandemic, like everywhere. Um, fortunately, uh, we were able to retain some singers in the cathedral early in the piece, from Easter up until just before Christmas. And then um, the government locked down at Christmas time and restricted the number of singers to five voices. So it does become hard to maintain a choir when you've only got five voices. And if you're yes. talking about, you know, sort of classical music, you know, uh, where you're talking about part singing, you know, the, the, the challenge is, is very difficult for individual voices to ensure that they're 100% correct yes. in everything that they sing as part of a small ensemble like that. So it's hard. Um, the cantor and organ solution, I think, is certainly um, one way to go. Um, and in a way, um, Congregations are not technically permitted to sing under the current rules, so the cantor and the organ can provide the sung music, and people just simply have to right. uh, put their hearts and minds in the in in the mouth of the cantor and the words that they're singing and the tunes that yes, they so sing. So you do envision a cantor. And so that's that that has been our solution, in fact, yes. to continuing music Excellent. throughout the course of the pandemic, and many other places have gone down that road as well. Uh, some places have gone down the the. Uh, the path of recorded music, which I have to say I condemn. Um, there is no place really for recorded music in our liturgies. Um, it's a lazy option. It's a bad way out. Uh, it may come across in a sense as providing a nice atmosphere, yes. but it fails to really meet 
the whole purpose of why we actually sing in church. Because, because the act of worship to God, which is the whole sacrifice of the Mass, includes the priest offering the sacrifice of our Lord uh, on the cross, and it goes outwards to the servers offering the sacrifice and, of their and, service. And the people engaging the people in all singing, of that, of course. The people sing offering the sacrifice of their voices. All of that. So it's that participation that makes the liturgy. All of that. And so I... I and to turn I, a, I, you know, a, I do, a piece on... I, I do lay my cards on the table here. And yes. I, I say that, you know, that that uh, pre-recorded music and CDs, etc. at Mass, even in the current situation, is not, is not helpful and uh, I think at the end of the pandemic, when we start to get back to a normal situation, hopefully, um, having a recorded music like that could in fact be detrimental to the restoration of, of live Absolutely. music. So we need to be really careful on that. Yes. Um, the issue of... Participatio uh, Actuosa. Yes, okay. So so does, does, does polyphonic music or music in a different language... Preclude active participation. No, it doesn't. The participatio acta no, was which Vatican II called. No, for. it doesn't. Let's be very clear here. You know, over the years, there's been an enormous discussion about what actually you know constitutes active, full, and conscious participation. In this gentleman's words, it's participatio actuoso. Okay. Yes. So that's just a fancy word. way of you know sort of describing one aspect of what the council articulated but the um, the idea that a congregation can't be actively involved in something that they're listening to um, is is just absurd and and we really need to grow up a little bit here and we need to put things into perspective and the choir has a place where it, it uh, is entitled to sing and uh, it should be allowed to sing in its own um, um, uh, corporate sense and people in the pew have an obligation to engage interiorly yep. to, to what's be, what is being sung. There does come down a question of balance as to, you know, is it appropriate for the choir to be singing absolutely everything at Mass to the exclusion of people? Well, that becomes more problematic. But simply to think that, you know, having the choir singing anything by itself or in a foreign language discourages, you know, the participatio actuoso there um, is, is just silly. And uh, we need to rem remind ourselves that, you know, that the church is a multilingual uh, organisation. Um, the Latin language is still the universal language of the Catholic Church. And despite what people will try and tell you, it's not a dead language. It has all sorts of applications. It's still there. We still use it. And uh, well, one of the arguments is that, you know, we talk that you talked to me before about that worldliness that we wanted to move to give the liturgy its identity by bringing in the world and, and everything of the world and the spirit of the world into the liturgy. It loses its identity. If we want to keep the identity of the mass, then we have to be Catholic in the mass. So... Latin, in a sense, creates a barrier between the world, the language of the world, where, you know, we, we talk, we insult, we, we scream, we sing in English or German, whatever your vernacular. Then the Latin language creates a barrier where we walk into the church and there's that language of prayer, that sense of uh, division from Look, that's the world. One, that's one way of that's one perceiving, way of perceiving it. it yeah. uh, I don't think it's exclusively like that. 
but I, I certainly think that uh, you know that that when we've inherited a tradition which is by and large in the Latin language, we today have a responsibility to, to actually sort of delve into that tradition and pull out the treasures and use them in their appropriate context yes. today. It's not our part of our generation to dismiss everything that went before us. Yes. And I suppose it's one of my problems that some of the generations of Catholics after the Second Vatican Council maybe have to bear some responsibility for discarding things that have been there for you know hundreds of years, centuries and centuries, and in one generation were just wiped out. Well, that's not fair to subsequent generations that come along. Why do you think the underlying cause was? Why did they just want to get rid of it? Because Why they, did they acknowledge they just, the... They just had enough of it. They just they were so fixated on, on everything being new and modern and forward-looking, not looking back into our tradition or not looking back into sort of stuff that was ancient, you know. It was all about looking in that forward modern new direction yes. and you know and the fact that the vernacular language was given to people as a as a as a privilege uh, to hear the liturgy celebrated in their own tongue did not necessarily mean to say that we should exclude the use of all those beautiful works you know do we pull down those stained glass windows with latin inscriptions yes you know maybe it did happen but you know if we do that sort of stuff we're basically returning to that sort of iconoclasm you know the dissolution of the monasteries well how you far know? that where does it stop do we pull out jesus exactly. christ do we pull out the well, bible do we exactly. you get you, so you there's some of the questions atheism. You, if you went down that track yes. you probably would exactly yes, exactly there'd be nothing left there'd be nothing left so um i think that uh it's all about what is appropriate for use in the liturgy today um, and in the circumstances in which we celebrate that liturgy. Something which might be appropriate in St Mary's Cathedral, Sydney, is not necessarily going to be appropriate down in the parish church in West Wyalong in country yes. New South Wales. Yes, that's right. So, you know, um, we just need to be a little bit uh, smarter about the way we uh, use our uh, treasures and, and we use our sacred music. But certainly, I'm not an anti-Latin person. Um, but I do believe uh, in providing translations uh, and some sort of assistance for people in the pew so that they can actually understand why something is being sung and why does it relate to today's feast. Ignorance is not helpful. Absolutely. That, that was perfectly said. Absolutely perfectly said. And I think we need to start working now. So the message to a lot of parish priests is that a lot of parish priests maybe simply have not put this on the agenda or on the council or anything of that matter. But maybe perhaps parish priests, uh, I, I think in most cases, parish priests are the ones to instigate this sort of uh, this work towards change or introducing. Well, certainly part of the, some the, of small part of the strategy is, is that you need to work with your parish priests and your clergy because you need them on board and you need to make sure that if you're the musician that's trying to uh, effect some sort of change or a plan to incorporate sacred music of this particular style in your parish, you need your priests on board. Um, so you need to work with them. You need to, to figure out how you're going to go ahead. Um, but the third part of my strategy, well, there's two others actually, George. I've, we've only really dealt with the, f the first one I've had the plan. The second one that I was going to say was to work out the repertoire. Know what you're actually going to sing. Yes. Choose carefully. Don't chew off bite off more than you can chew because 
unfortunately, you know, sometimes the experience is that, that people try to do something that is beyond the capacity of the yes. group they have and that's rendered badly and it leaves a bad experience on the part of the listener. Yes. So okay. that's not helpful so stay either. So capacity. stay within your capacity. And the third part of the strategy is implement slowly. In what do you all mean by the, slow? Well, I mean... Slow should it mean, oh, we, we no, take five years to no, start singing well, again? Well, no, five years. maybe it does. In all the previous experiences that I've had where I've established choirs and, and tried to change the direction of music in a particular parish or whatever, um, it has been about introducing things slowly. So you just simply cannot walk in and suddenly in one Sunday decide we're going to sing all the Gregorian propers and we're going to have a full polyphonic palestrina mass <laughs> and uh, the organ's going to play a whole lot of really loud music at the beginning and the end and the priest's going to sing everything because you'll just get knocked on the head and it'll all fall over and it'll be a failure. But if you walk in and gradually introduce, okay, well this week, we're going to start to introduce some chant. We're going to do some simple Kyrie and some Agnus Day. And the people get used to seeing that. Okay, okay for now a we've got that for a month or two or three. Okay, then you add a few other it. little bits as well. Okay. Then the choir is going to learn a lovely piece of sacred polyphony and we're going to sing that as an offertory motif. Okay, beautiful. Everybody's going to go, oh, that was nice. How lovely, you know? And then, you start to change the the hymnody. Okay, well, now we're going to pull out a few more old golden oldies here. And all of a sudden, everyone goes, oh, I love that hymn. We used to sing <laughs> it at school. It's one of my favourites. Get that going. But it, it's all about introducing it slowly. You have to bring the people with you. That is the reality of success. If you think you're just going to go in gung-ho and turn it all over on its head overnight, you're not going to achieve anything. So you have to give and take and sometimes people have perceived on my part that i've been a bit easy i give in well i give in in the short term because <laughs> in the long term i know that it's going to actually sort of get me you know more and more people in on board accepting of what i do to the point now where they're all used to it and you know, George, from your own experience, in the cathedral here in Parramatta, that's exactly what we've done over the last 15 years. And we now have a solemn mass on Sunday where the choir does sing the Gregorian propers. We do have sacred polyphony. We have the beautiful pipe organ playing and thundering away. Yes. And people come because they know that's how it's done and, and they they know what to expect. And it, it's, it's very important it's that they done, say people come. Well. I know so many people from across Sydney who come to our cathedral just to hear the... Uh, to experience the liturgy, clover the beauty of the, the music. The music has been a, a driving point why people have come because it's helped them pray, it's helped them elevate themselves to the worship of God. And just to end here about, uh, about St. Patrick's Cathedral Choir, uh, where do you see the future of your choir and the work that you're doing moving forward? Uh, well, just... In the in the immediate future, George, yes. where do I see it? I'm just hoping I'm that we're going COVID. to be. I'm just hoping that we're <laughs> going to be able to sort of get back on track. Um, God's grace, we will indeed, because uh, you know we've had a whole year really where we've not been able to rehearse. Um, people get rusty, um, people drift away, um, so we need to re-engage and bring things back to that regular um, pattern of rehearsal of performance. Um, and really just pick up, in a sense, where we lost, left off. So, Excellent. Look, I think it, it, will be, it will be a challenge a little bit to get back on track, but do you foresee things going back to normal? Uh, I do, I do. 
Um, there will be changes. Yes. Um, certainly in, in the music program that I run, there will be changes. Um, and some things will be done differently. But by and large, um, I see the role of the choir in the cathedral church here as being integral now. Um, I think everybody accepts the place of the choir and the music and how important it is to the life of the cathedral and the parish. Uh, and the diocese, of course, being the mother church of the diocese. Uh, so I, I see you know, a bright future going forwards. Um, but yeah, we need to get this COVID situation out of the way, like quick. Yeah, excellent. And um, just for our listeners, what is your favourite, your favourite uh, piece of music? What are some of your favourite works in sacred music? Oh, George, <laughs> that's like saying, what's your favourite chocolate in that box where they're all delicious and fantastic? <laughs> um, oh, look. Let's say, let's take a mass setting, for instance. Look, I, I love the masses of, um, of, of, of William Byrd. I love the masses of, of Thomas Louis de Vittoria. Um, you know, I love that period of, of high Renaissance polyphony. Um, but I also love, uh, you know, the classical masses as well, the Mozarts, the Haydn's. Um, and I love the, the repertoire of the, of, the, of the French composers of the, of, the, of the 19th and 20th century. So um, it's 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 really it's it's really impossible to pull out a particular favourite. I think you know, it's they're all favourites. It's phenomenal. I think uh, let's say we're approaching Lent at the moment, and uh, what's phenomenal? What what marks my Lent in that in that uh, um, in terms of music is the Miserere May, the phenomenal Miserere May sure. that's sung by the Cathedral Choir. And uh, I believe when Pope, which Pope was it, that first had heard it and was so mesmerised he banned anyone from singing it outside the Vatican walls. Oh yes, I can't remember. Look, all of that's all that stuff is legend, um, but uh, the, the Miserere that we hear today is 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 somewhat of a 19th century reconstruction as to how they think that it might have been performed. Yes. So um, it's, it's not entirely authentic. But the, look, nonetheless, the overall impression of, of, of that piece of music is a masterpiece and uh, glorious soaring uh, moments throughout that just lift people's soul. And uh, it just it's no wonder that it was um, part of the papal uh, music repertoire in the Sistine Chapel. It's phenomenal. And uh, look, what are some of the greatest experiences in terms of music, uh, um, the, in you carrying out sacred music? What are some of the best experiences you've had? Let's say coordinating masses or, or um, performances. Oh, well, again, you know, it's, it's hard because when you're in my position, you, you're constantly doing um, big occasions um, and they can be very uh, stimulating and exciting. Um, ordinations, uh, installations of bishops. Ordinations usually are yeah a, a phenomenal. They're wonderful occasions, you know. I mean, they're, they're great occasions and celebrations for the church and for those young men who are ordained. Um, so those big occasions are are exciting, exhilarating, and um, and and a wonderful privilege to be able to direct the music for. Um, but you know, I mean, the the, the Sunday to Sunday routine um, is also very satisfying. Um, and you know, even just working with small groups, imparting my 
love of sacred music and my knowledge and experience to younger generations of people is a particularly important um, part of what I do now. Um, we mentioned the seminarians before. Yes, um, it's a very important. And that's, that's one of my key uh, roles there is to, I suppose, in, instill a love for that tradition of music for them so they understand the historical context, they understand the liturgical application of it. Um, that's that, that's um, one of the great joys that I, I now have. I'm, I'm old enough and experienced enough to be able to pass on that to, to younger people who are who are just starting to learn it. So and just a bit about the cathedral organ um, as we head into the end of our uh, episode here tonight. Um, I know there's a great story about the organ at St. Patrick's Cathedral, Parramatta, being one of a kind in the country. Well, the organ is certainly uh, a very magnificent instrument and we're very fortunate to have it at St. Patrick's. Uh, it's a three manual organ that was built in 1898 for a big church in London, St. Saviour's at Knightsbridge, which was quite a ritzy part of London. So you can imagine that it was decked out with all the specifications of a big wealthy church. Yeah. And it was the flagship instrument for the particular builder at the time who was trying to break into the London market. So he put all his best work into that instrument. And uh, it's a big, powerful pipe organ with lots and lots of different colors and shades of sounds from very, very soft to extremely loud and deafening. So yes. it's, it's a wonderful organ. Um, we're very lucky to have it. And it really is a great asset to the to the music program in the cathedral. And uh, it's it, it's absolutely phenomenal. I mean, the size of the thing is is, is just remarkable. And uh, and uh, to have shipped that across from the UK was uh, it's it's something which uh, uh, I believe you know people uh, it could be a tourist a touristic. Oh, people come idea. to look at it and play it because it has a reputation that uh, precedes it. So people do like to come and hear it and, uh, and those who play um, sit down and play it. And they get as big a thrill out of playing it as I do. I never tire of playing that organ. It's phenomenal. There are some instruments. And you run lessons. Uh, I, I teach some lessons. I yes. don't have a lot of students because I've got, students. I've got a lot of other things that I'm doing. <laughs> It's phenomenal. Um, just, uh, I mean, everything that you've done over these years and what you plan to do for the future is, is just absolutely amazing. And I know sacred music um, is definitely, for a lot of young people, I think, like myself and so many other people, uh, they, they, they've come to the they experience the faith uh, with the aid of Gregorian chant, especially with the traditional Latin mass, let's say, for instance, uh, because obviously Gregorian chant is used very readily in polyphony. As well, so they. I think that's been their first taste of Gregorian chant um, and and other sacred music, but I think uh, and and the acceptance of Latin, as you said, in the in Gregorian in Gregorian chant and other polyphonies, um, because of uh, the traditional Latin mass, sometimes allows people to accept that it's in Latin and. Uh, and so, look, it's it's absolutely wonderful um, to but see. But even the Novus Ordo Mass can be in Latin, and it exactly. can still have the chant, and it can still have the polyphony. There are still lots and lots and lots of scope, even in the current uh, missal 
as to how you can incorporate all of that wonderful treasury of music and tradition. So, you know, it, it can be done both in the old form and in the new form. And it's just sad that, in a sense, that uh, that younger people in often just have never had the exposure to something as beautiful and as, as uplifting as some of those particular musical styles, all those liturgical styles. It's not for everybody, but a lot of people, when they see it and they hear it, they recognise the antiquity and the authenticity of it and the place of it as being part of our Catholic tradition. And, uh, and once you've been exposed to it, um, there's generally not that much turning away from it. That's been my experience. So you sort of get hooked. You sort of do. I think it really aids contemplation. Mm. Because can we argue that, let's say, uh, sacred music or that softer, rolls better, sounds nicer, helps in contemplation there by prayer? A little bit more than, let's say, drums or, or more active music? Well, you know, some of those wonderful classical masses by Mozart and Haydn have fantastic kettle drums in them, George. Oh, they do. You That's know, right, yeah. Mass in Time of War, you know, those sorts of things. Yes. And the kettle drums are just banging and clanging. You know, they work in the context. But um, again, how particular instruments are incorporated and the way they're used, what associations they have with profanity or with secular forms um, can taint or distort people's yes. perception of how appropriate it is. Absolutely. And I think, uh, thank you very much for being with me tonight. Well, it's been, an it's been an absolute pleasure to be here, George. And you can continue to call me Bernard. <laughs> Bernard. Thank you for tuning in to The Art of Practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh. Until next week, God bless, take care and take action. In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity.